Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You know, our culture is one in which we try desperately to avoid the one thing that we must all face, death. We go all in on safety measures, we go all in on extending life expectancy, and, and rightfully so, because we were created to live. Death is not natural to us. And so we have the yearning for life, we long for life, we want life to be as long as possible, we want it to be extended. However, over the past two weeks, I would say in particular, we've been reminded that life is fragile. And life sometimes ends much quicker than we would like it to end. The shootings in Nashville and the tragic loss of Andrew Dodson here in our own community this week have reminded us of the fragility of life. And the reality of death has been brought to the forefront of our minds. I think it's all entirely, absolutely appropriate then that we gather today to worship and to consider the risen Savior. The one who in John 11 boldly proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we gather today and reminded and mindful of death, but we gather today knowing and hearing of the hope that is in Christ. So we gather today with, with great thanks being to God that Resurrection Sunday is here, that the resurrection of Christ is real, and that Jesus is alive, that he is the resurrection and the life. And as Pastor Mike said in the prayer, this changes everything. It changes everything. And so Christians, as we gather today, I, I, my prayer is that, that you would be comforted, that you would be strengthened, that you would be granted peace and, and hope today in the certainty of life that is found in Christ and the peace that is ours, knowing Jesus Christ is Lord and King and Savior, that He is alive and reigning on His throne. And unbelievers, I, I pray that as we look at His Word this morning, that in light of all that has taken place in the last couple of weeks and in light of the reality of death, in light of the truthfulness and the reality of Scripture and what we'll read today, I pray that you would consider the words of the Lord and its implications upon your life and that you would trust in Christ today. Our passage today is a, a lengthy one, one that's probably longer than most that I would typically preach on and Easter Sunday, so you have to bear with us, but it's an important one that we want to read together. And so let's read it today, John 11, 1 through 44. It's, a, it's an account that is pretty well known, even outside of those of you who would come and, and be in a church every week. A lot of you probably have heard of Lazarus. It's the account of Lazarus, and we want to read it this morning. John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose 
brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the, night, the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45 and 46 tell us that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. A mixture of responses. Some of them believed. Those who had seen, they witnessed it. They beheld the glory of Christ, the resurrection and the life, speaking to a dead man and him coming forth from the grave. And it just says that many believed. Not all, just many. We have in this passage a remarkable display of Jesus' power over death. We have a, a remarkable sign that declares that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. It's a passage that does not allow you to remain apathetic or indifferent towards Jesus' identity or your standing with him. You have to wrestle with this passage. You have to come to this passage and make a decision. Will I believe in Christ or will I reject him? You cannot be indifferent when you look at this passage. You must consider the implications of this account. Believers need to consider the implications of this account for our lives and how we walk through life, how we live in faith, how we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Unbelievers, you need to consider the implications of this account that occurred in the life of Christ and what it means for your life and whether you choose to follow or reject Jesus Christ. So let's look at the passage. This first section of the passage, 1 through 16, we see several important things. The first thing I would just point out to you is that in verses 3 and 5, we see the depth of relationships that Jesus had on earth. We see the fact that he truly loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. This was a, a family that was dear to him, a family he had spent time with. So that means that when we come to this account, we understand and we should realize that this was not some easy day for Jesus. This was not a day that was just kind of just shrug his shoulder and say, well, this has happened, no big deal. This would have been a difficult day for Christ. It would be the reason that prompted Jesus to weep 
in verse 35. He wept over the grief that his loved ones, that his friends experienced. He wept over the very real consequence of sin, which is death. And the question we often ask when death comes upon us, the question that I would imagine most everyone in here has asked before, the question that I've asked multiple times in the last two weeks is why? Why? Why, why does this happen to this person at this time? Why? The reality is we often don't know the answer to that question. We often don't know the answer to the why question. But interestingly enough, in this passage, Jesus actually gives two reasons for why Lazarus died. Here in the first 16 verses, we have two explanations. And the bottom line is Jesus' explanation, the reason is that he might be glorified, that his glory and power would be revealed, and that we might believe. That's the two reasons that Lazarus died. The first one's found in verse 4 there. That he says, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Why did Lazarus die? So that, there in verse 4, so that, that's your key word, the Son of God would be glorified through it. In the Gospel of John, when, when John writes and, and he, he teaches throughout, throughout the Gospel, he talks a lot about the glory of God being revealed and, and primarily what John is getting across there in the Gospel, when he talks about the glory of God, he's not necessarily speaking of the praise that we give to God as far as giving Him glory, praising Him as much as He is, the fact that it is God's glory being revealed to us, being shown, being exposed, being put before us and set before us that we might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he revealed his glory through various signs in the gospel. And this is one of those in which he comes and he glorifies himself. He reveals himself to us to know who Jesus is. And we read there, interestingly, in verse 5, we read what happens. He, he said, we read that he loved Mary and Martha and, her sister, and, and Lazarus. So because he loved them, what did he do? Well, he waited around. He didn't go immediately. He waited two additional days before he went to where they were. It was the, the love of Christ for them that caused him to wait. And that's interesting, isn't it? Why? Because it was his plan to reveal himself in a mighty and a powerful way to their family so that they would all behold his glory and believe that he was indeed the Son of God and that we might in turn hear the testimony, hear the account, and also believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus' love led him to purposefully, intentionally reveal himself to them in a powerful way. But it was through the agony and the suffering and the grief of death. It perhaps is a foreshadowing of his own death and his own resurrection, in which he would ultimately and powerfully reveal his glory and who he is as the Son of God, come in flesh for our sins, who would rise to live forever. Lazarus' death, first of all, occurred that the Son of God would be glorified. The second reason he gives there is in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, Lazarus has died. He's talking to the disciples. 
And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. He was glad. He said, listen, he has, he's died. He's dead. He's not just asleep. He's not just taking a nap. You've totally missed it. He's dead. And I'm glad that I wasn't there because for your sake, this has happened so that you might believe in him. Our belief in Christ, our trust in him as Savior is a key theme in the Gospel of John. All throughout the Gospel, we see this driving focus that it is written that we might believe in Christ for salvation. So much so at the end of the Gospel in John 20, verse 30, 31, John writes and he tells us why he has recorded his Gospel and the way he's recorded it, why he recorded what he recorded for our sake. He says, now Jesus did many other signs revealing his glory, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose for Jesus revealing himself and of John recording this gospel is that we might believe in Christ and therefore have eternal life in his name. Belief, our belief is the focus here. It's the focus also in verses 25 to 26 where we see the, the word believe talks about three different times where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the great question that he asked Martha, and there's a question that's before every one of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe it's the great promise of John 3.16. Just a few chapters earlier, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lazarus died that we might believe in Christ. The purpose of this passage in God's Word is that we might believe in Christ. It should well up within us a faith and a confidence and a trust in Him. That we would look to Him and that we would turn and we would say, I believe that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. The purpose of this passage, the purpose of this sermon, the purpose of our time together is not just for you to be intellectually stimulated. It's not just for you to sing some great songs. It's not just for us to come and to look nice in our, in our Easter bow tie and whatever it is we have on. The purpose of this time together is that we would look and we would behold that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Savior, the One who gave His life for our sins, and that we might look upon Him and believe in His name for salvation and eternal life. And so I would say to you quite bluntly, those of you in here that only come to church on Christmas and Easter, the Christers among us, I am glad that you're here. I'm thankful you're here. I really am. I wish you would be here every week. And I don't want you to miss why we're glad you're here. It's not for numbers. It's not just so we have a full room. 
The reason that we're glad that you're here is that we hope and we pray that you would look and you would hear the words of, of Jesus in John 11 and you would behold Jesus, the Son of God, and that you would turn to Him in faith and that you would believe in Him. Not that you would just go home and be encouraged and feel good and have a great lunch, but would you believe in Christ today? That is the great hope. That's the great prayer that we would have for you today. The next section there, beginning in verse 17 down through verse 27, we just point out one. In verse 17, Lazarus was very dead, right? He was in the tomb for four days. The guy wasn't hanging out, twiddling his thumbs. He was dead and smelled bad by this point. There was no mistaking it. Yet Martha had great confidence in Jesus' power. His, his, her response when he comes is, what, if, if you had just been here, if you had been here, you could have healed him. You could have prevented this. That, that same sentiment is echoed by Mary. Both Martha and Mary have great confidence, confidence in Christ's ability. They both look to him and they know his power. They know his power of, of being able to heal and, 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 and prevent death. But Jesus replied to them. He doesn't just say, yeah, you're right. I could have. All shucks. <laughs> Wish I'd been here. No, his, his reply is, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And he says this to grieving sisters. He says this to sisters who have spent the last four days weeping, who have had friends from Jerusalem travel to them to weep with them, to mourn with them. And he looks at them and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Can you imagine? And Martha, what is Martha? Martha says, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. I got that. See, Martha was operating from Pharisaic Judaism, which held that, that in the end day, there would be a resurrection. The, the Sadducees disagreed with that. They did not believe in a resurrection. But Martha was operating from a pretty commonly held belief among the Jews. But Jesus looks at her and says, listen, I'm, I'm not just talking about the end day. I'm talking about now. I want you to look at me standing in front of you right now. I am the resurrection and the life. I am in your presence. You stand before life. I hold the keys to life and death. I am. I am. He directs her faith not to the future. He directs her faith to him right there. He makes an emphatic statement, a statement with great emphasis, a statement that Jews of that day, and it's another theme you see in John. There's seven different times in John where, where Jesus says, I am, and he says it emphatically to convey the truth that he is taking the name of Yahweh, the great I am. He says, I am am the resurrection and the life. And for him to say that, I am the resurrection, the life, is saying that there is no resurrection or life apart from me. It's not found apart from me. If you want to know life, you find it in Christ. 
That's why later in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The life that is found in Jesus is eternal life that transcends and goes beyond this mortal life. Listen, you need to know today, this mortal life is not all there is. It's not all there is. One of the the great deceits of our day, one of the great schemes and lies of Satan is to convince us that we only live for today. We only live for the present. We only live for what we see in this world. And so everything we do then is, is geared towards the things of this life, the things we acquire, the stuff we get, the experiences we can have. And our lives get focused on that. And we neglect the things of God. We neglect that which is of utmost importance. But you must know this mortal life is not all there is. And I would contend to you, if you would stop and step back and be honest with yourself, you know this is true. Even unbelievers among us, if you would consider and think and examine your heart, you know and you sense that this mortal life is not all there is. You know there is something more. We have a longing for that. You know it. It's because we are created to live and because this mortal life is not all there is. So we look to Christ. We're beckoned to look to Christ here. You see, it's this reality, the reality that this mortal life is not all there is, that leads Jesus to say what he says, that leads him to look in the face of sorrow and grief and to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He he speaks that because he knows, A, that there's more to our existence than this mortal life. And B, he knows what awaits. He knows the cross awaits, but he knows that he will rise again. Do you know that Jesus predicts his death time and time again, but every time he predicts his death, he speaks of his resurrection? He is always mindful that he knows that he will rise again. He knows that. In John 10, just the chapter before, he had revealed himself as the good shepherd, and he described himself as a good shepherd who lays down his life and who raise it up again. Verse 17 and 18, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And then what did we read? What did, what did Pat read to us from John 20? It happened. Jesus said, you know what? I have the authority. I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for my sheep, and I have the authority to take it back up again. We go 10 chapters later, and John gives us the account of when this happened, that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. He is alive. He does reign. He is not in the tomb. I I love that when you read in the Scriptures, you read and said, he's risen. He's not here. He's not here. He's risen. Listen, Christ's own resurrection validates, corroborates what he says when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says that prior to this happening. 
But you can only imagine everything that floods Mary and Martha's minds when Jesus raises from the grave and they behold him. They see him revealed over the next 40 days after he arises. They see him. Oh, yeah. That's the resurrection of life. He's the one that rose our brother from the grave and he's the resurrection of life. I get it. His resurrection means and changes everything. If Christ did not rise, then what he says in verse 26 is a waste of ink and space and a waste of our time and we need to go home. But he did rise. He does live. He does reign. He has conquered death. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, it's what we sang earlier, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And we have the, the picture that, that, that God gave John in Revelation, John's exiled on the island of Patmos, and then Jesus comes and he, he reveals this glimpse of heaven to him. And at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation 1, 17, 18, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> this is John. This is John who walked with him. This is John that heard him teach. This is John who described himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And John exiled. John who's seen the risen Savior. He saw him. John exiled. Jesus comes to him and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He just collapsed. He's collapsed. But... He laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and I'm the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ is a risen and he reigns, and he rules. He is in charge. He is exalted forevermore. He is alive. Now, I would just point out in verse 26, he says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believes, or who lives and believes in me shall never die. In the original language, when he says, and believes in me shall never die, he, it's a double negative here. And it, you can't really, you know, if you relate it in Greek, some of you English teachers here would go, no, that doesn't sound right. It's a double negative. You're not supposed to say that. But he says it in the Greek. What it would literally read is that no, never die. Not ever. No, not will die for all time is how it would read very rigidly and literally will never, ever die eternally, is how you can put it. So Jesus says, and whoever believes in me shall never, ever die eternally. So though you die, you won't die eternally. 
because I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet shall you live. Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in me, you're never going to walk through the door of death. We're all going to walk that path unless he comes back before we die. But what he says is death is not final. It's not the end. Though he die, yet shall he live. We need to just point out the obvious here. Jesus did not prevent Lazarus' death. Neither did he reprimand Martha and Mary for their grief. He didn't browbeat them and say, I can't believe you're weeping. Why would you do that? No, Jesus wept alongside them. But you know what Jesus did do? Jesus filled up their sorrow and grief with a hope that death can never destroy. Their sorrow and grief was suddenly overflowing with hope. And what we need to learn today, what we need to remember today, is that Jesus does not always prevent death. He doesn't always prevent death. But Jesus has conquered death. That though you die, if you believe in Christ, yet shall you live. I don't know why it is that we see at times God miraculously sparing some from death. Thankful for it. I've seen moments where I've been in some of your own hospital rooms. I can name multiples of you sitting in here today that I've sat in the hospital room, prayed with you, spoke with you, and left and come back and told the guys, I don't think they'll be with us. And here you sit. I don't know. And I don't know why on the other hand, there are times where we gather and we pray, God, spare my brother, spare my mother, spare my sister, my father, my friend. But they die. I don't know. But what I do know is that for all who die, who believe in Christ, they shall live. I do know that while Jesus Christ does not always prevent death, He has conquered death. I do know that we have numerous accounts in Scripture of people dying. And we have accounts of Scripture of people living, people raising from the grave. I know that my Savior lives and reigns. I know that the death that we face in this mortal life is not all there is. It's not final. I know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I know that Jesus is always faithful to keep his promises. I know that Jesus is powerful enough to defeat death. I know that for all who believe in him, we will live eternally with him. 
I know that I have been saved to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know that he has promised an inheritance of eternal life that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. I know that because all of this, my hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. I know that. I believe in Christ. I know that because the response that I hold when Jesus looks to me and he, he says, do you believe this? Just as he looked at Martha, he says, do you believe this? Yes, I believe. Martha's response is, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's the great confession of faith. It's the same exact confession of faith that, that Peter utters in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus had asked him, said, who does everybody say that I am? And, and the, the disciples say, well, they say this and that and this and that. And there's all kinds of ideas about who you are. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son, the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, because that was not revealed to you by anyone other than God himself. And now here, Martha utters the same confession of faith. It's the same confession of faith that many, I would say most of us in here have responded to. When we come to John 11, we come and we hear and we see who Jesus is, and we, conf we are confronted with that question, do you believe in Christ? Yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's a confession of faith that some of you in here need to make today. You need to believe upon Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Now, just as a brief side note, in verse 28 to 44, I just want to point this out quickly. When Martha goes and says, hey, Mary, the teacher's calling you. He wants you to come. Mary goes to him. It says, Mary goes, she went to Jesus in verse 29. And I just think kind of a, a side note question that we need to be reminded of is where do you go? Where do you turn? Where do you go to in moments of grief, in moments of sorrow? There's options. You, you can turn to substances to numb your pain. But I'll just go ahead and tell you the pain is going to be there when the substances wear off. You can turn your feelings inward and just ig ignore the sorrow and the grief. Just kind of pretend it's not there. It's, I'm just going to think about this. And what happens is one day all of that just bursts forth. And it wreaks havoc in your life and in the lives of those around you. You can perhaps turn to all sorts of answers and self-help books and grief gurus. Here's your six steps for grief. Try to walk that timeline, which is crazy because everybody grieves a little differently. Their wisdom is limited. The reality is they're just like the rest of us. They have no power over death. You can even turn to your work become a workaholic or you can dive headlong into your hobbies your interests to distract yourself so that you don't think about it anymore you just busy yourself to get it off your mind 
The problem is when you lay down at the end of the day or you wake up in the middle of the night, the grief and the reality of sorrow is still there. Jesus is who we must go to. Mary goes to Him and we see the great compassion of Jesus, don't we? We see that when He looks and He sees her weeping in verse 33, and He sees all the Jews who had come along also weeping, it says He was deeply moved in His spirit and He was greatly troubled. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the one who knew what He was about to do, the one who knew in a minute, I'm going to just tell Lazarus to come forward and He's going to come forward. The one who created life, he looks and he's deeply moved. He's troubled. And in verse 35, he wept. He wept. The Almighty, ever-existent, everlasting, Alpha and Omega, sovereign, holy, perfect Son of God, wept. I mean, we see the compassion of the Savior on full display. And in His compassion, He provides mercy and hope to strengthen the grieving. And that mercy and hope that strengthens the grieving is anchored in what? The fact that He is the resurrection and the life. The hope and the mercy that we have in difficult days like we've gone through in the last couple of weeks is the fact that Jesus Christ lives and He reigns. He is the resurrection and the life. We do not grieve as those who do not have hope, but we grieve as those with hope. And so then you come to verse 43 and 44, and we see Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and the man who had died. John is very intentional there. In that section, you you see multiple times where, uh, where John makes a point to say the man who is dead, the man who had died, as if you had forgotten or so there wouldn't be any mistaking the fact, he's talking about the dead guy. And the dead guy comes out. He's the one that walks out. It wasn't some other guy. It was the dead man. And what we learn is when the one who created life commands the dead to come forth, the breath of life rushes into his lungs, he stands up and he walks out. We learn that when the author of life determines that death is not the end, then that means death is not the end. Because he is the author and giver of life. We learn that the one, when the one who is sovereign over all things speaks, nothing, including death, is greater. He is the authority. Nothing will stand against him. And believers, there is great beauty in this. There's great beauty in this. Do you know why? It's not just because we can look back on what Jesus did. It's not just because we can remember and think back, oh, do you remember that time when Jesus spoke and Lazarus came out? Man, what a great day. I wish I was there. That's so encouraging. It is. But just listen. Listen. Because this will be repeated for everyone who is in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Talking about those who have died. They're not taking a nap. They're dead. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now listen to what's going to happen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Believers, Jesus stood at the door of that tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out. 1 Thessalonians tells us that when Christ returns, he will come with a command and the dead in Christ will come out. To all who believe in Christ, though he die, yet shall he live. Thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God that he is the resurrection and the life. Unbelievers, the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ was more than just a good teacher. He was more than a good leader. Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died on the cross and who rose from the grave, defeating death. He is God in the flesh who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you sit here today and you're an unbeliever, you have to wrestle with the reality of the resurrection. You have to. You can't be indifferent to it. You can't just shrug it off. You can't just say, well, it's not a big deal. The resurrection is the testimony of the Son of God. It is the greatest proclamation, sign, revelation of God's power and the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the, the, the evidence for the resurrection is just too overwhelming. You can't go, oh, well, it's just a nice story, but that's all it is. No, you can't do that. The resurrection, the evidence is, is too great. The, the tomb was empty. It was empty. There was no one there, and, and all the testimonies affirm that. Five different independent biblical authors attest to that. Their testimony was corroborated by testimonies of women who found it, and also by the response of Jewish authorities. The tomb was empty. He was not there. And then you have the evidence that he appeared to 500 people after the resurrection, over 500 people, it says. You don't have mass hallucinations. He appeared to them in different places at different times. And the testimony agreed. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had died. He has risen. Then you have the, the evidence of the disciples, those who had been racked with sorrow and fear and grief and had withdrawn to their homes in fear, were suddenly filled with great confidence and boldness, so much so that they died for their Savior. Why would they flip like that? Why would they go from grieving and hiding to boldly giving testimony the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
When you look at Acts, their sermons are filled with that truth, the resurrection. When Paul speaks in Athens and he preaches that great sermon, it's the resurrection of the dead that he proclaims, and it's the resurrection of the dead that people look at and mock him for. And he keeps on. Because why? Because Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. You can't ignore those things. You can't deny the fact that there's no other suitable, logical explanation for the fact that the tomb was empty. I mean, you can't go, well, what we said a minute ago, you can't go, well, they were just hallucinating. I mean, we have, people have hallucinations, right? We know that. But we don't have mass hallucinations where all of us, 500 gathered today, we all of a sudden hallucinate. We have the same hallucination, the same thing. We all go, whoa, that was crazy. I can't believe it was all the same. No. You children of the 60s know that hallucinations were all crazy and different. Not all the same. You can't say that the disciples faked Jesus' death. That's, that's just absolutely unreasonable. It would, it would ignore the fact that, that people don't willingly die for something they know is a lie. You might put up a front, you might go hey, and, and try to present a lie, but when it comes down to it and your life's on the line, you don't die for something you know is a lie. They would be saying that the disciples faked it and they all went to their death, horrible, horrible deaths, to try to sell a lie. They're not going to do that. It would be unreasonable to think that. It would be crazy to say, hey, they faked the death, and uh, uh, I'm just going to ignore the fact that these are uh, some, some disciples that would have to fake the death by overcoming and overpowering or out-sneaking in some way Roman guards. That doesn't make sense. That, that, that wouldn't happen. If, if you say, well, he didn't really die. It, it, he just swooned. He, he was beaten so badly, when he just appeared to be dead. Well, that doesn't work either. Because then you're ignoring the fact that the Romans are expert executioners. They're experts. They major in killing people. They know how to do it. They do it well. And say, oh, well, they're really good at it, but they, they kind of missed it on Jesus. It's illogical. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense to go that way. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. You can't miss the fact that Jesus in his ministry predicted his own death and resurrection. Multiple times. Matthew 12, 40, 16, 21, 17, 22 to 23, Mark 9, 9, Mark 10, 32 to 34, John 2, 19 to 22, to name a few. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And I will raise from the grave three days later. How do you explain that? Jesus demonstrated his power over death in raising Lazarus. If you've been with us in our study of Matthew, you know he raised the ruler's daughter from the grave also. And he also raised the son of the widow of Nain. He demonstrated his power over death. The evidence is astounding. The testimony is astounding. That Jesus Christ is the resurrection 
and the life. And so friends, I would just read this to you one last time this morning. Those of you who are unbelievers, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe? The call of Christ is repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your way of life and believe in Him. Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God? who came and lived a perfect life, who was crucified, died, buried, and rose again, victorious over death. Do you believe? For those of us who do, we stand and we sing Christ, our hope in life and death. Those of you who have never trusted Christ, I would make the appeal to you today to believe in Christ. Place your faith in Christ. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. As we do, if you want to talk to me and pray with me about trusting Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or afterwards, in the foyer, I'll talk to you out there. You can text me or call me or message me online. Do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe? Let's pray.